0: off your device. That's soberlink.com forward slash T a M and let accountability be your guide. Hello everyone. Welcome to the addicted mind podcast. We are on to episode 119. My name is Dwayne Osterlund. I'm your host. And we have a great interview today with Steve Mellon. He is the author of Killing Graces. I just got off this interview and it was so awesome to chat with Steve and in a way, just kind of absorb his resiliency and his hope about getting through really difficult stuff. Um, He's a cancer survivor. He's been in recovery and gone through being addicted to opioids since the cancer. And his story is just riveting and hopeful. So I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So let's go ahead and start this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a great guest today. His name is Steve Mellon, author of Killer Graces, and it is his journey through stomach cancer, addiction, and survival, and coming through the other side, and resiliency, as we were kind of talking before we started, right? So Steve, please introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, my name is Steve Mellon, financial advisor, uh, stomach cancer survivor, father, Husband, I got all sorts of titles, but yes, for for this purposes, uh, I'm a written recovery, especially.
0: Awesome, great. So let's just let's just jump in and start your story. How did this kind of all begin?
1: Okay, well, uh, I guess the main part of why I wanted to start writing a book uh, was the recovery part from a very, very traumatic. Event uh, being diagnosed with stomach cancer, and that was 13 years ago, almost to the day. It was, uh, I think, it was maybe sometime within this week. And wow. you know, I'd been going to the doctor a couple times before over the prior six months, and they, it was misdiagnosed. And finally, on this particular day, I went to the emergency room because I was having excessive pains right in my esophagus area, stomach area. And I I went in. They did a did some blood work. They did a scan, they did an endoscopy, and they saw a mass, and within hours, I was, I was told that I have cancer, and they weren't, weren't sure also if it was pancreatic cancer, but there was a mass there, and that was the beginning of really this part of my, my story. My, my story has five different or so elements to it, but I think this is the one that was the real, immediate, oh, crap, change of life day right. that I had. Right. That where uh, with then from that point, in the, over the next two weeks, I had to see multiple doctors, hospitals, and I proceeded to have my stomach removed, my spleen, half my pancreas, a third of my esophagus. I spent a month in the hospital, sedated on a breathing tube for a week because of code blue situation. I was on pain pump, med pumps for weeks on end. And then all that followed by chemo and radiation and recovery and all sorts of stuff. But that's really where the the story of I thought life was going pretty good and it all fell apart pretty quickly.
0: Right. And it sounds like that happened really, really fast. So what was that like, just getting this news and then jumping into medical treatment?
1: Well, the, the thing is, at that time, I was married and had a one-year-old daughter. And so... Uh, I was trying to put a really happy face on, but it's really tough to do that when you're when you're in the hospital. I was there for a month. Uh, I didn't want my daughter to come see me because I had tubes in my nose and my neck and my stomach and everywhere, and I was just not doing so well at first. And uh, and and then I was I had a button that I was pushing for Delauded, just getting it every 15 minutes. I had a pain med specialist team come in giving me oxycoton oxycodone, I was hallucinating in the ICU. It was very unstable time and I you know after looking back, it was scary for all my friends, my family, my, but my daughter was so young she didn't necessarily know what was going on at the time. but right. it was a dramatic change from living a life that appeared to be going I mean I was 30 it was, they wanted to do the, the surgery on my 38th birthday and I said no. I don't want it. And my 30th birthday is on January 30th. So it's coming up. And I said, no, because I don't want my death day and birthday to be the same day. So they pushed it off one week to actually have the surgery. So I was supposed to have it on January 30th.
0: Wow. Wow. So I want to get into eventually into the addiction part of it and and the opioids and going through, you know, the pain and all that. But before we go there, I want to ask, like, looking back. Going through that, how do you think? I mean, when I say, I want to say survived it, but mentally survived it or mentally got through it.
1: Well, I think I've always had a sense of humor that got me through my an- anxious times that I had, especially when I was a, a little kid. I would, if I got very nervous or uncomfortable, I would try to make people laugh around me because it would lighten the situation up. So in my case now, I used lighthearted, not serious, maybe some jokes to, oh, like, you know, just I don't know what it would be. It would be something in the hospital. If I had a tube here, this, I'd try right. to light of it. And that was my initial sort of defense mechanism to kind of get through. I basically was faking it. I was putting a fake smile on. I was trying to have people laugh because I could see the look on their faces when they'd come visit me. You know, when, they, when I was in the ICU and I was hooked up, their look was like, oh. This guy is in bad shape. And I wanted right. to make them not feel so uncomfortable coming to visit me because I didn't want to be that stranger, that monster, that whatever it was. So I right. think I, I used an old tool of trying to just lighten things up with humor and not really and not complain. I mean, what good was complaining and do. And then I also was trying to block out the reality of really what I was going through. And just I was doing the steps that doctors were telling me. I got out of it. I. I knew it was painful, but I figured I didn't see myself at that point really dying. I said, oh, I can do it. I can do it. But I didn't know how bad it was. It was pretty, it was touch and go for a while.
0: So when that denial started to fade, what happened?
1: I started to uh, increase my pain med usage. Right. And numb it out.
0: Just numb it out. Get rid of it.
1: I I did not, because the I had a full pass. To, to take whatever I wanted. So when that when I had to deal with the reality that uh, th- that I wasn't doing as well as what is and then I and then I started going online, seeing things, and my odds were uh, let's just say there were about a fifteen percent chance of survival in five years. Wow. It was not it it was it was not a pretty situation. So I I ended up numbing that out in whatever way possible. And at that point, what I had were pills. And, so you just uh, took them. I took them, and I took. Well, I also had a fentanyl patch. I had Loratab, liquid Vicodin. I had Oxycontin. I had Oxycodone. I had uh, Dilaudid. I had. Uh, they they gave me everything, you know. But th- but keep in mind at this time now, uh, right after the surgery and, and whatnot, I was. I then had to go through chemo and radiation. So now we talk about feeling incredibly nauseous and sick for. I couldn't get out of my bed. I couldn't, I could only watch TV and that was even painful. So that lasted for weeks on end. And, wow. uh, and so, you know, I, when you, it's like having the flu times 10 every day and it just doesn't get any better.
0: Yeah. So this just keeps going and, and you kind of, I guess, have this permission To do all these drugs, and in in some ways, legitimately, I mean, if you're in real physical pain, you you need these these drugs. But then, I guess there's a consequence to that too.
1: Huge consequence. And I kind of had a pass. Like I could, I mean, if I got pulled over by a police officer, I would. They would take one look at me if I was coming from the hospital, and they would let me go because I'd have you know bandages on me, and I would, you know, they would just go, Oh my god. So and my friends never said no to me. My wife never said, you know, no, but everyone, I think, I think they thought the worst was going to happen. And so they weren't going to stop me from numbing my pain. So, right. you know, so that I, in my doctor, the prescriptions kind of kept on increasing because your tolerance goes up. And, and, uh, and so I, you know, it, it was a year of that basically, of fighting that and increasing that until I came to a point where I knew it was getting to be problematic.
0: So how, how did you start to discover that? Like, how did that start to kind of, uh, or how did you wake up to that? I guess is the question. Like, well, how did I, you start to see that?
1: I had, I had a my friend was a doctor at the hospital I went to, and he happened to be my anesthesiologist during my second major surgery where he I code blueed and I almost died. So after following the months following, we would meet, and he said, "It's not if, but it's when you're going to have a problem with the pain meds." And he goes, I've seen this stuff happen. And you have to make sure you go to one doctor and not multiple doctors. Cause I had an oncologist, radiologist, gastro, uh, surgeon, primary. Like I could have really just gone around and, and picked up drugs from all of them. And, but he said, you got to go to one doctor, make sure that they are aware of what you're taking and they can monitor it. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And it, it, you know, I didn't want to necessarily because I just didn't want the pain. And I didn't really realize how bad it was until later. But it was starting to get bad. Five Oxycontins a day were turning into 10 a day, turned into 20 a day.
0: Wow. So that's a lot. I was
1: taking 20 20s a day, which I was nine at this point I was 95 pounds. I was could barely eat. My intestines weren't working. I was I was in pain all the time. And I I was trying I was working with my primary care physician to wean down 10% a month. And I wasn't able to do it. I was taking more. I was biting them in half and trying to take the pills. But 20 pills in half is now 40 times a day I'm taking these pills. It's It became all-consuming.
0: Wow. So, so how did you start to to move away from it?
1: I ran out of my month's supply in two weeks. And then I called my doctor and asked for a refill. And they said, no. And I said, <laughs> You don't understand I'm in pain. I am it and like I could have passed a lie detector test. I it was chronic pain by this point. But I was right. in because they had to crack my ribs to take everything out. So but, but after a year those things heal. They don't stay with you, but the doctors don't really know how much pain you're in because my organs are shifting around and you don't really know. So I was in pain and I would tell them and they would say, "All right, take this and you can take that." But I realized it was just getting to be too much.
0: Wow. So as you started to move away from these drugs that were numbing out, you know, it sounds like physical pain. And I, I would imagine the emotional pain of it.
1: Everything. Yes.
0: Right. So I, when that started to go away, what, what happened?
1: When I was getting off the pain meds? Yeah. It was hell. It was like, so what happened was in the, when I ran out of pills, I decided that, okay, it's time to stop. So I cold turkeyed it right that day. Well, that's not a good idea. Um, I ended up getting wheeled into the emergency room. Like, you know, 48 hours later, I couldn't even walk. I had to get a wheelchair in. I thought I was, I literally thought I was dying and that was it they ended up doing all the tests they end up giving me asking me if i want a shot of dilaudid because and, and i said yes give it to me and my wife said no and she went out crying didn't want me to have the pills and the drugs anymore i got the shot and i was immediately better and that's when i knew i had a problem full-on wow. problem like that like that was when how is it that i go from dying to actually feeling okay in five minutes So I left the hospital there and said, now I'm just going to, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to go through this battle of detox and I'm going to take it on. And I did. And I didn't realize how hard it was. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, I've had the cancer surgery. I've had the chemo and radiation detoxing off of that. I spent a week on my floor. I couldn't even get off the floor for a week. I couldn't even pick up my cell phone. I couldn't even text anyone. I was such a mess. I was, you know, Drenched in sweat every night, uh, changing my shirt five times. It was a mess.
0: So what was it in you when you reflect back that gave you that incredible power to fight this, to, to, to say, I'm making this choice, even in the immense amount of all this pain and, you know, emotional and physical and, and here you are lying on the floor. I want to know, like, where does, where does, that will come from for you.
1: I I felt that I was absolutely pathetic <clears throat> at the time. I felt that I was not a husband, a father, uh, a man. You know, I was losing all this, and I and at that point, that I finally realized that I was addicted to these things. You know, I'd survived the cancer for a year now, so I wasn't necessarily imminently dying of the cancer and now i'm kind of dying of this other stuff and i had seen plenty of movies and heard stories about the recovery and how hard it. Is. i didn't know how bad it was going to be if i would have known that it was going to last a month of recovery to to really feel normal again or somewhat normal i, I don't know how people go through it. i mean it's i see how people have such a hard time getting off this stuff because the first week was just suicidal almost it was that it was that yeah. bad yeah. but i have I had a 2-year-old daughter. I it was I had to put on the strongest face to just be like a father figure but I was so weak. I was so weak walking up and down the stairs. So to do that I just knew I had to do it for some reason, for something.
0: So you yeah, had no. this strong this strong purpose in those moments your daughter, you know, that purpose gave you that energy. That's what I'm I'm, I'm making out. Yes.
1: Yes. The, so I had the support from people outside of the house but in my house, you know, I had a I I had this daughter still do, right? That was that what that I wanted her to remember me and I wanted her to cuz in a, you know, at 2 years old if I died, she wouldn't remember me. And I wanted her to know who I was and not if she had any last memories, it to be this person lying on the ground and, or vomiting or throwing up. Like, you know, I, you know, I didn't want that to be in her head. So I said, I have to get to the point where I can be strong enough, sit up, be strong, hug her, hold her. And, you know, at that point I couldn't do it. And I had looked up stuff where people had recovered from this kind of thing and it can be done. I just knew it was going to be really hard. And I said, all right, well, You know i've been through a lot of crap in this last year i mean this is just one more thing i'm just gonna do it i'm gonna give it this time and i'm gonna do it for this This power so she'll remember this purpose
0: wow that sounds like that gave you a lot of strength in in those really hard and painful moments
1: Uh, i don't know i don't i don't know if i didn't have her i don't know where i would have gone i would have probably found some other purpose but at that point, that that's what I had. I needed that a light. I needed something to, you know, to not be, to have her be 15, 14 years old like she is now and be like, oh, I don't really remember. Just look at pictures of me. I did not want that to be the case. So I fought.
0: It's almost like being able to put your focus somewhere else when you're in all of that pain. To, to just focus on that. This is my, this is where I am going. This is what I am doing. This is how I'm going to go.
1: That's so important. You just said that is the focus has to go off of yourself. And when the focus is on yourself, I could have just lied there in a ball in a fetal position on the floor and just given up. If I just thought about how much pain I was in mental, physical, I want I I wanted to die. You know, I wanted to just, I didn't want to kill myself. I was just like, I don't know how much more of this I can take. Right. So let's focus out and let's look at my daughter and let's sit up and let's get out of the bed and let's put a smile on.
0: As best you can.
1: Yeah, as best as you can. It was hard.
0: Yeah, and so my next question is, you get through that, right? You you find that purpose, you get through that. I, I imagine the dust kind of settles. You go through the withdrawal. And now you have to move on with your life. Like you have to keep going, right? Even though now yep. now you're out of the acuteness of it. Yep. Right. So t- tell me a, a little bit about that part of the journey.
1: Well, what I was trying to do after that was to get back to some sort of normalcy. I wanted to get back to being, you know, the father and the husband and whatnot. So I actually, because of that, getting off the pain meds, I ended up gaining 25 pounds in the next month which was, you know, so I'm now at 120 pounds instead of 95 pounds, right? Huge difference. Now I can actually walk, right? So now I'm trying to go outside for walks. And those walks, I look, I was a slow walker and it was a short walk, but I was able to get outside and do those things. And then I wanted to get back to maybe trying to have a meal in public, maybe, because I was hard to do. And I wanted to, and then... Stupid me, you know, I, at the time, you know, I wanted to get back to what my life was before. And before it was go out, have a meal, drink wine, have a, so I hadn't had any alcohol in over a year. And I thought, okay, well, what did I do before? I would just drink, uh, have wine. Well, the wine started slowly and it ended up being a substitute for the pain meds. And I was continuing to numb. So what I thought was getting back to normal life was just replacing it with something else. And that led me down a couple year path that ended me into two rehabs after that. So, so it wasn't over at that point. You know, I wasn't in my five year cancer free mark, I was getting scanned every three to six months. And then now I'm saying, all right, well, I've gained my some weight back, I want to get back to being normal, I'm going to go to work, I'm going to go out to dinner, I'm going to try to have intimacy with my wife again, which, you know, all these things that were just gone. Right, And right. And, I, and I made an effort, but it was, but the part of me that I didn't realize that I think my wiring had changed in that process with the, the opiates that now I was really still in a lot more pain than I thought I was. So I numbed that or, you know, with alcohol.
0: Would you say that that's that emotional pain
1: the emotional pain was so, so much stronger than I was aware of. You know, you can ignore it and say, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. But really, we're all, I mean, we've all got something going on. And there's certain things that you want to let out and don't. And the things I was holding in a lot, And that emotional pain was very, was very, was deeper than I was aware of at the time.
0: So you started to go to the wine. You found the wine was now a way for you to cope with this emotional pain. Yes. And then you're starting to work through that. And then, so how did you start to deal with uh, this pain, the emotional pain, the, the, I guess the burden sometimes we all carry with us, the internal?
1: Well, so I had always, I'd had a lot of anxiety when I was a younger kid and I didn't know why. And it was more of a social anxiety. And so I would get nervous in class and I would, you know, later on I started, I would have a panic attack because. I didn't, and I didn't know what that was. I just didn't know where this was all coming from. So when you get off the pain meds and you're completely clear and you're all of a sudden you have to deal with all of the emotion, it brings back a lot of anxieties and you have to deal with all of that clearly. Right. Right. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily like dealing with it because I was, a, I was adopted and given up as a. Two-year-old child. I had all this stuff that got me to this point where I felt like I wasn't necessarily—I don't know—I felt abandoned in a way. I guess it took years of therapy to figure that. But you know, I was given up as a little child in a weird adoption, right. and then my biological and my adopted parents both died. So I was kind of—I didn't have those those people. So I think the anxiety and facing that anxiety was a real hard thing to uh, deal with. Clear-minded, not impaired at all. So now. I, I thought wine alcohol was just a safe way to go ahead and continue like getting back in kind of numbing. It was not for me. For me, it was it was just making things worse than it needed to be.
0: So there was this even deeper level of pain that even besides the cancer, besides all of that, you know and, and going through the, there was this other part of you that needed healing as well.
1: It, it still does I think I, I, I accept it much better but yeah I mean I there was this childhood stuff that that uh, needed to come out and needed to be faced and know and, and then know that I can actually get through it and at this point I didn't have any you know I didn't have any control over that early childhood stuff I was too young to control any of it and it was now I was kind of having to deal with that. Now I'm in control. I'm the oldest family member. I'm in control of being the senior figure, father figure of the husband. And, and I was screwing it up and I was losing, I was losing, losing my child because my wife was taking my daughter away from me and it just spiraled and I ended up isolating more and I ended up just, uh, in a, in a place where I didn't, now I'm losing my daughter again. I almost died from the cancer. And then the pain meds kind of started to, I wanted to survive. And now I've got the alcohol that is, that is numbing these really painful things from childhood and the fear of death that was constantly on my mind because I still wasn't out of the woods. I was, I still hadn't made it to that five year mark that they really want you to make it
0: to. Right.
1: And I didn't know anyone who had really done really well for that long with this type of cancers. And I was part of all these cancer groups. And the one person that I knew that had the identical surgery, cancer, he died three years into it. And that threw me for a terrible downfall because I, wow. I had one, one inspiration and the one inspiration died. He was my exact age.
0: Oh and, my gosh. Uh,
1: and so that put that pressure on. So I went to his funeral, you know, and after I'm at a bar, like those wake, drinking cocktails going, this is me. I'm going to die in another six months.
0: Right. Right. So, oh, my gosh. I, I just imagine like that feeling. I mean, just so alone there.
1: Alone. I mean, yes.
0: Alone. I mean, oh, my yeah. goodness.
1: But I did. I had a wife and a daughter and a house and cars and I friends. And I had I had these things, but I still felt alone in this whole world. And that's that was my doing. I, I could have maybe allowed more people in, but I was just, I was scared of. And I kind of wanted to do it my way, like Frank Sinatra, I'll do it my way I just <laughs> do it gonna, my way I'll do it my way, and my way was was numbing
0: and, yeah, and, and you mentioned starting to to do therapy or doing therapy. You had gone to therapy in the past with all of this anxiety and and at this point started to continue to do therapy.
1: Yeah, yeah, I started when I was twenty nine uh, going to therapy because I had a panic attack at work, and I didn't know what it was. And it just out of the blue. And from that point, the fear of that kind of stayed with me. And I started to numb that or, or try to avoid those situations. And it took me 17 years of therapy to kind of like, <laughs> to, to get through to the point to where, really, what I needed to do was quit drinking and, and doing the payments and then get through this cycle of whatever it is. And so now I don't I don't have those things. Like I don't have right. the. I do have anxiety for things, you know. Like, you know, I get nervous, but not not debilitating anxiety that I had for a while there. And really, getting through this whole process has given me so much strength to be able to do these things that maybe it's not that I don't care or I think that I'm going to die. I just really I'm in the present more now versus thinking about the panic that potentially could or the stuff that's happened in the past. I, I'm really with you and us all right now and it alleviates my anxiety
0: right staying right here in this moment and this is what counts because really
1: this really does Yes. this is all we
0: we have it's is this all, moment
1: <laughs> I don't know what tomorrow's gonna hold, but right now I love what we're doing I love these things and I love sharing the experience because I had huge anxiety i have had huge pain i've had huge not necessarily depression but stress across the board but right now i've got a 14 year old daughter and a stepson who loved me and my wife i'm remarried to my high school sweetheart who was my first like my life is really good right now that is and so awesome i love today <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is so awesome so let's get to you uh writing your book Yes. And, and doing that and, and putting that out there into the world.
1: Yeah, I, I probably started the process a little on the early side because I was still drinking at the time that I started the book. But I met an author in a bar and he was an older gentleman in his 80s and he had written multiple books. And I was doing my happy hour after work, song and dance. Let's go meet and have drinks and then come home thing. And he loved my story so much. And he said, I'm going to drop everything I'm doing, and we need to write a book about your story. So I said, this is great. So we met for the next year, and I was drinking, doing this, but he ended up getting Parkinson's that prohibited him from doing more work. And it took me seven years to write this book. He actually died the week before my book got released. So he never got to see my book released. But I had to. I, I used other writers with me and go through that process. But it took. a I had four different writers helping me because I was picking the wrong people, uh, really, that uh, to help me write this book. And I needed to get this story out there. And I needed to pull these five stories of adoption, cancer, divorce. Divorce is part of that thing, but recovery and the ending has to be what I have now. I wanted to get that out. The love that got me through this. So. So I went through this for, for the final writer. I I found him because he did an article on me in the local paper that we had here and he won an award on it. And I went back to him and I said, you know, I know you did this article. Have you ever written a book before? And he goes, no, I'm like, I'm running out of options here. And I, and you won an award for this. Let's, let's write a book. So we spent the next year and a half, two years meeting zoom calls, personal meetings, like every week and and getting this down and then it just got released a couple months ago so it was a long process but very it was I mean expensive time-consuming overwhelming but therapeutic and so far the reviews from everyone that sent me personal messages you know they cry during it so sometimes it's a little hard but hey I'm still here so if you know that I'm still here it's okay
0: Right. And, and it's, it's a book of, of resiliency and, and hope.
1: That's really what it is. And, and not to, you know, everyone has their level of challenges. I don't want people to, oh, I've been through that exactly. I hope no one goes through this. But we all have family, children, parents, relatives going through these things and it's going to be hard. Something's going to be hard for you at some point. So now, whenever people who know me have someone that they want to talk to about that has something, whether it's addiction or it's or whether it is anxiety and or death or cancer, they come to me and ask me how how should they communicate with that? And I I give them my two cents. I don't tell them what to do, and I don't know the situation, but I you know give them some hope. Let them know that there's someone there that's done this. So 13 years, I'm still here. And I don't know many, I know very, very few that are living longer than I am in this situation that I was diagnosed. And I don't know if I know anyone, maybe there's one of the thousands of people that are actually doing better than I am. So it's a, it's a rare thing, but it actually is possible. There's a lot of people younger than me or fewer years that have actually survived all these things. I've been sober for seven years now. So sober for seven, almost eight. That is miraculous. I've been cancer-free for 13.
0: Wow, that is awesome. One of the things as you're talking, I I was thinking is just how you kept going and you kept looking enough ahead to be able to get here where in a way you don't have to look ahead. You can just be here.
1: (laughs) All right, there was a period of my life where uh, there was no future in my, I was all dark. I didn't see anything and I was wanting so badly to see a future. And when you're curled up and you're in pain and you're feel isolated and alone and you know, you just don't see much, but that's, that's the kind of thing that we all have to at least see that things can get better no matter how bad they get. They can, they aren't always going to, but you know, whatever you or I, or we have control over at least today, do the things today that you can do, get up, go for a little walk, like whatever my walks, were literally like I I had people would see me and they would like double take at me and I was like just trying. But at first it was just getting up the stairs. Getting up the stairs was hard. So wow. how embarrassing. It's like, it's like me. Now like my friends call me chicken arms, right? You know, it's it's like I don't like to go to go into the gym and to pick up those little weights is hard to do when you've got these other men that are lifting the big weights. <laughs> yeah. hard to do it's hard to pick up those little weights to start and that's that's kind of what i had to do and that to me that was humbling to start with a little walk
0: and that's what i noticed i mean you just said i'll just do the next step i'll just do the next thing in front of me i'll just keep doing it one little thing at a time and really that's all you need to do and you'll get there
1: yeah right cuz then you look back a week or a month or a year and you go wow like i didn't see this little progress turned into a, some big big steps but i am everything and more. I'm as good as I've ever been in my life now, which is that's kind of a you know, to get to be 51 almost and to say that, you know, I'm young enough to where I still have energy but I'm old enough to have these pretty intense experiences and that's why I'm trying to share them while I still have the energy.
0: Awesome. I th- I think that's so great. So, we're getting close to the end of our time. I have one more question for you. Your title of the book is Killer Graces. Tell me a little bit about how you got that title.
1: So uh, the first time I ever, I was surviving, trying to survive stomach cancer and I wanted to do something exciting. So what I did was I actually uh, wanted to get into horse racing because my friends have owned horses. So the, so I called the trainer, the trainer actually said he has a horse that I can get involved in. And I said, okay, what's the horse's name? And he says, killer graces. And I said, Okay, I know nothing about this. I would like, I'll go ahead and buy into it. Well, that one particular day, I I bought the horse. The next month, we go to the racetrack and I win our first race with Killer Graces, and it was a big race. And on that day, I reconnected with my current wife. So she was engaged to a billionaire at the time, and she showed up with him. I was with my wife, and then I met some future longtime friends. Killer graces ended up being that thing that kind of gave me a little spark in my life to to be excited and to have some motivation. And, and it was all part of a horse. And I thought that I've been through some killer situations, but they've been graces because I feel so good. So it just fit. I'm going and that was that was uh, uh, almost 10 years ago uh, wow. when I did that. So I was three years into the cancer. I was just starting to get a taste of getting better and Killer Graces came into my life. And then, so when I was writing the book, I said, you know, I, I think that just fits well in my life. It's very symbolic of what I've been through. So Killer Graces was, uh, was the name I chose.
0: That is, that is awesome. I love, I love, I even love that part of it. It's that's yeah. great. It's so great. So, okay. If anybody is out there listening, I hope people are listening. If anybody's out there, And maybe they're struggling, you know, and they're at a point in their life where they don't know if they can go forward. What would you tell them?
1: Okay, I would, what I would highly recommend is have faith in yourself that you can do more than you think you can. I didn't, I didn't know that I could actually handle these. uh, I call them challenges and not, not problems. That's another thing is I turn things from problems. Into challenges because problems can be really, really negative and really bad. Uh, And face it and do what is suggested and what you feel is right and make try to make progress as little as the progress can be. If you're having trouble eating, maybe start with little tiny spoonfuls and just if you have trouble drinking water, just a little shot. Whatever it is, baby steps because then. Down the road, you're gonna look back and you're gonna see those big steps, but it sometimes it may take a little while. But because to us, every hour seems like an eternity sometimes when you're in pain, whatever pain that is. Yeah. And we we forget pain and we can get through pain. But when you're in the middle of it, you think you're the only one that's going through it. But you know, I know there's people, lots of people gone through way more than I have. And I think, you know what, might it's not so bad. I can right. get through it today. So I'm a man in the, in the present, walking toward the future. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm keeping it one day at a time.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Steve, so much. Where can people find more information about you or find your book? Where can they go?
1: Okay. So I I did create a website where you can see a kind of a collage of pictures and, and buy the book and it goes directly to Amazon. It's on Amazon, but killer graces is the name of the book. My website is my name. It's Steve Mellon, M- it's M-E-L-E-N. I'm the Swedish Mellon. So stevemellon.com. And it, it, I'm going to have some updates there and you can go to links to buy the book. And the audiobook is actually coming out in probably about another one to two weeks. It's already been done. It's just waiting to be approved, but I have it on Kindle and paperback now. And then the audiobook should be out very soon.
0: Awesome. I will put all those links in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. Steve, this has been awesome. I've loved having this conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming on and and giving us your time and your wisdom.
1: Thank you, Dwayne, for having me. It's been fun this morning. I really enjoyed it. So thank you to all your listeners.
0: All right, everyone. Once again, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 119. Now, if you are enjoying The Addicted Mind, please share the podcast with a friend and subscribe in iTunes. And if you really feel up to it, please leave us a review. That really does help get the podcast a lot of exposure, and I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day, and I will talk to you on the next episode.